Uh, I want to introduce myself. I guess Coop kind of already did. Uh, I'm Mark. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I get to work uh, primarily with the youth. Uh, and this morning I get to come up here to the upstairs and uh, get to share with you guys. And I'm excited to open God's uh, word with you this morning. Uh, I'm not the usual face that you get to see on a Sunday morning. Pastor Eric is out of town. Uh, long story short, he's warm. We are not. Um, I feel like as Alaskans, we need to start giving out medals to people that make it through the whole winter without leaving. Um, people that go to California, Hawaii for two weeks, like you get it incomplete. Like you didn't complete the assignment. You, I'm just saying. I mean, it's kind of like performance enhancing drugs in baseball. It's not a level playing field that they leave and we're here. But uh, while Eric was gone, he, he told me that I could preach uh, on whatever I wanted, which uh, he's a man of tremendous faith. Um, I was inspired by him as, as he was sharing, I believe it was two weeks ago, as we were closing up the book of John, and, and he was sharing about John chapter 21, and just how much that chapter meant to him if, if he was sort of stranded on a desert island, that that was the, the chapter that he would take with him, and, and it sort of got me asking myself the question, what are some of those places in the Bible that I'd find myself going to, just routinely, those places that you just love? Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I asked actually the high school students, I said, well, I, I get to, to preach on a Sunday morning. What should I preach about? And, and several of them said, we should do an Old Testament story. Um, so this morning, I'm going to combine those, those two things, and I'm going to go to a place that I find myself going often, and that's to a story about a prophet named Elijah. Uh, we're going to be in the book of First Kings this morning, but before we dive in, uh, let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, I'm thankful for uh, my friend Coop and for Young Life and for the ministry that they do uh, in this town and and in this state and in this world. Uh, Thank you for people that are are willing to go and and meet teenagers where they are. Um, The word church scares a lot of people and and teenagers are no different. So thank you um, for people that are willing to go outside of literally this box uh, and be very active uh, in the lives of the teenagers in this town because there are thousands of them. Lord, and they need to know who you are. Uh, Lord, we sang this morning, you are an amazing God. And I hope that that theme will just ring true through everything uh, that I get the privilege of sharing this morning. As we open up your word, that your amazingness will jump off the page and that we will be overwhelmed by who you are, God. I thank you for uh, this, this man, Elijah, that we get to look at just a little bit of his story of his life and how you used him in a very um, amazing and powerful way, God. Uh, My prayer is that your word would speak very boldly this morning into our hearts and into our minds and into the areas that we need it to go, God. Uh, We ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Like I said, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 if you want to turn there, but we can't just dive into the middle of a story without understanding what's been going on, what's been leading up to, to what we're about to look at. Good Bible reading is always done in context. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is sort of the background or the history that leads in to this story. And so it's actually, we're not going to read through it all, but it actually begins a couple chapters earlier in, in chapter 16, and, and we're going to see a very interesting competition today, and we need to get introduced to the teams, these two teams that are going to compete. And so the first team that we're going to see is this team of Elijah and God. Elijah bursts onto the scene in chapter 17, and he's introduced to us as Elijah the Tishbite. 
we get a, a more vivid picture um, of who he is in 2 Kings, where he's described like this. He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And I think the Bible could have saved a few words and just simply written, he looked Alaskan. Um, a rough, rugged individual. In my mind, I, I picture one of the guys crab fishing on Alaska's deadliest catch, uh, probably desperately in need of a shower and a shave. Uh, and in chapter 17, Elijah confronts King Ahab out of the blue, and he tells him this, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So Elijah, this man knows how to make an entrance, and he also knows how to quickly get disliked. Uh, the second team that we're going to look at, the, the second team in the competition is going to be King Ahab and his god, Baal. We're introduced to King Ahab in, in the previous chapters. In, in chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab is described like this. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Uh, which, considering sort of where Israel was at at this point in their history, that's really saying something. Um, uh, it then kind of goes on to explain a little bit more about his story and how he had adopted some of his wife's religious practices, his wife Jezebel. She was the result of a, a political marriage, and she was brought in as an outsider, uh, and their marriage was sort of to establish a, a peaceful relationship with the neighbors and she worshipped Baal, and so she sort of brought that with him. And Ahab, wanting to impress his wife, actually built a temple for Baal uh, there where they were at. Uh, maybe I personally would have went with like flowers or like a romantic walk on the beach, but he went with you know a temple to Baal. Uh, maybe he had botched Valentine's Day and was looking to you know salvage something, but he built her a, a temple for Baal. And it also says this in in verse thirty three, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Israel was like a struggling company that hired a bad CEO and the problems were multiplying and things were quickly going from bad to worse. So in chapter 17, uh, as we showed Elijah and Ahab meet, and Elijah tells him that God will make it so that it won't rain for the next few years because Ahab and Israel were no longer following after God. Now it's true if you sort of know your Old Testament history, God had made a covenant promise to Israel to bless them, but Israel had also made a covenant with God to follow the laws and not worship any other gods. And so as Israel walks away from God, God withholds his blessing from Israel in the form of rain. And when you don't have a Fred Myers, what that means is drought and no food. Um, one of the reasons why God chose to withhold the rain, I think in, in particular, I mean, discipline was certainly one of those for the nation of Israel, but it was also this, this confrontation that was brewing uh, with the God Baal that Ahab and, and the Israelites had chosen to follow. Uh, Baal was called the storm god. He was considered sort of the, the source of rain and thunderstorms and providing water for the crops was, was just kind of what he did. That, that would be the whole entire reason why you would, would worship him. And at this point, God tells Elijah after he confronts uh, Ahab, he says, y you need to go away for a while or this guy's going to kill you. So Elijah goes off and, and kind of hides for a couple years. And, and while he's gone, the rain does not come. 
Uh, So that kind of takes us to where we're going to pick up this morning. God has told Elijah after a couple of years, it's time to go back and confront King Ahab one more time. So if you want to read along with me this morning, 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 16. And so the first thing that we see is an accusation that comes from Ahab. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Um, Ahab sees Elijah, and and he's probably a little surprised that, that Elijah had come out of hiding, that he sort of had the nerve to show himself. And Ahab accuses Elijah of sort of being the man behind the problems, of being the, the reason that trouble has fallen on Israel, and this drought has not been a, a minor inconvenience. This has been a national epidemic. Uh, and he's, Elijah, you've got a lot of nerve showing your face around here. You're the problem. Um, and so we at least see the awareness um, of King Ahab of recognizing the, the power behind Elijah, and, and we see that he recognizes that Elijah was the source of the trouble, that it wasn't just a coincidental lack of rain. So then accusation from Ahab, and then we get the the response from Elijah. Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, if this doesn't take you back to the third grade playground and you don't hear a little bit of, I know you are, but what am I in this? You're not reading it right. I mean, there's these, they're sort of bickering uh, a, a little bit here. And Elijah's like, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. And it started with your dad and, and you've only made it worse. And I'm not the one leading an entire nation astray. That's you. This problem is the result of your choices, not me. And so here's where we get to sort of the meat uh, of it today. Here is where we get to where Elijah issues a challenge. Uh, Buckle up, we're going to read a bit right here. Picking up in verse 19, Elijah speaking. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent the word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or, or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. 
Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been turned down, torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are are turning their hearts back again. Let's go through, let's break down uh, what happens in here. Verse 19, Elijah issues uh, a challenge to the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Uh, He challenges 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And he says, you go get your team and let's meet at Mount Carmel and let's have this contest. So Ahab is okay with that. He, he gathers up the, the prophets and he gathers up, gets the word out to the people and, and they come to the mountain. And you can just sort of imagine the buzz uh, as word sort of goes out from here. What, what's about to happen? That, that crazy guy who said that it wasn't gonna rain for three years, that he, he's responsible for, for not raining and he's challenging how many of our prophets? 850 of them against just him? Oh, I've got to see this. And, and you could just picture the, the buzz building and the word of mouth and, and, and the excitement that would sort of, oh, this is going to be interesting. And so Elijah, then when the people are gathered, he makes this sort of opening speech and, and he confronts them. Pick a side. Verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Uh, he's accusing, he's like, you're wavering, you're fence-sitting, you're flip-flopping, you're, you're lukewarm, you're uncommitted. Uh, the question, it, it sort of gives a, a picture of, of a bird hopping down a branch and the branch forks and the bird tries to sort of walk with one leg on each side of the branch until eventually it's unsustainable. At a certain point, you have to pick a side. You can't continue to walk down two separate paths at the same time. And Elijah's saying that to them. You have the freedom to follow God and, and you have the freedom not to follow God. Pick a side. You, you don't get to pick and choose your commitments to God. They wanted to sort of keep one foot in the traditional faith of Israel and, and I would imagine mainly the God blessing them part and, and they wanted to keep their other foot in the, the worship of Baal, this new and interesting God. And if we can be honest, some of us can be like that at times. Maybe we want the, the blessings of God. We want sort of the good part of God and we want to keep our foot in the God camp, but not if that means total obedience and, and being a committed disciple of his. We don't necessarily want to follow everything. So, so we sort of walk with, well, I, I want to do the God part, but I kind of still want to do it my own way too. So after Elijah sort of calls him on this, the, the people said nothing. They, they didn't like being called out. Uh, maybe they were overcome with guilt. Maybe... There's just no defense that they could muster for the decisions that they had made. 
and in the contest, we see that Elijah sort of appoints the people of Israel as judge. You get to be the, the panel that's going to determine who wins this. We're doing this. You get to pick who the winner is. And so we see the, the challenge is an interesting challenge. And in verse 22, we each get, we're each going to get a bull. And, and Elijah is so generous, he even lets them choose their bull first. Uh, and, and we'll prepare them for it. And we'll, we'll, we'll put it on some wood, but, but we're not going to light it. And then here, verse 24, then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answers by fire, he is God. So we're each gonna have a bull sacrificed and sort of set up on an altar ready to go. And, and the first one whose God can make it catch fire wins. So simple enough contest. And the people say, what you say is, is good. They, they seem to have found their voice again. Baal was the storm God. Um, storms have lightning. Uh, lightning makes fire He'd kind of been letting him down on the whole reigning thing over the last three and a half years. So maybe he was just saving it for this contest so he could really muster up uh, a good showing. He was the chief deity in the whole sort of Canaanite pantheon. And he also represented the sun god. So fire was his, like, he should have that totally covered. If Baal was everything that they thought that he was, this contest was over before it started. Challenging Baal to a fire starting contest is the equivalent of me challenging LeBron James to a slam dunk contest. You're just looking at it and go, well, that's what he does, and that's not what you do. Like, that's, we, we know how this ends. And on top of that, Mount Carmel was also considered sort of a sacred place uh, for Baal. This was his home turf. So it was a contest to do something he was good at in a place he should be particularly powerful. They had a significant numerical advantage. Ahab and the prophets looked at this and loved everything about it. Have you ever been challenged uh, by somebody to do something that you know that you're better than them at? You're like, you want, okay, sure. Yeah, no, we can do that. We'll settle it that way. That's how they felt with this. They're like, seriously? Okay, whew. Thought this was gonna be a hard day. Okay, no, we'll do that. Verse 26, so they took their shot at it. So the, they took the bull given to them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response and no one answered. They danced around the altar that they had made. Now, interesting note, at, at, at this point in the story, we, we don't see um, the prophets of Asherah anymore. The, the challenge went out to both, but from the, after the challenge, we only see the prophets of Baal uh, interacting in the story. So either the prophets of Asherah were, were sort of too scared to show up, or they exercised tremendous wisdom and didn't want to bring a knife to a God fight. Uh, they, they knew they were out of their bounds. Verse 27, and this is where we, we get uh, to sort of my favorite part of the story. Um, there's something I find particularly wonderful when uh, the Bible gets sarcastic. Um, don't you feel good when you sort of read someone in the Bible and they respond exactly how you would have responded in that moment? Uh, it's why we, so many of us love Peter, because we read Peter and he says something, you're like, oh, that's terrible, but I probably would have said that too. Like, we love Peter. Um, if you've spent any time with me, you can see my appreciation for Elijah and how he responds to this situation. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said, surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling or maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. It's, he's just, he's having a good time with them. Is, is he too deep in thought to hear you? Is he pondering something? Is he trying to figure out why the rain won't come? Is he on a potty break? Should we just wait this out? Like, we'll give you five more minutes. Uh, did he go on vacation? Is he in California? I've heard it's nice this time of year. Is he sleepy? Is your God napping? We can wait. Is it some sort of government holiday? Is, is his cell phone dead? Did, did he leave his fire in his other pants? You know what? It, like he's, 
he's just having a hoot with them. And you get the picture that there's all these people there and he's the only one laughing. Um, but I imagine he was having a, just a fantastic time at this point in time. Um, now, one point I want to make absolutely clear. This is not the manual for evangelism and apologetics 101. Okay. Now, picture, we heard from Andrew Cooper this morning, picture young life and interacting with a student that doesn't want sort of anything to do with church. And he sits down and says, you believe in what? Your God, you think that that conversation is over. That kid is pushed away. That's not how we do it. But you have that life on lifetime. You begin to hear their story and you begin to look for opportunities to share your story. That's, that's how we do evangelism. So don't take this and, and say, you know, when you meet somebody that, that thinks differently than you, that, well, the Bible would clearly make fun of you in this situation. So let me go ahead and do that too. Elijah was making a point to Israel that had been the people of God that had walked away from their faith in God to follow Baal. And he was pointing out the ridiculousness of that choice, the ridiculousness of that decision. And he, he just has to say, you guys were like this and now you're this and how's that working for you? It's either that or he'd been out away from people for about three and a half years and his social skills were a little rusty and he didn't quite know how to handle uh, himself. But verse 28 this gets them really mad and they start trying harder. They start slashing themselves and cutting themselves and just giving it everything that they've got. But it says there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, this is not a question of how hard they believed, uh, but belief in something does not make it true. Sincerity of faith is not the issue in this story. They were the most sincere people in all the world, but they were sincerely wrong. They had the wrong object for their faith, and faith is always determined by its object. So now it's it's Elijah's turn, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me, and they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, you shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Gather round close, he says. Come, come see this. You want to, you want to see what's happening here. You want to know that there's no trickery. He repaired the altar to the Lord, and it was possible that it had sort of just fallen into disrepair from lack of use. But stone altars typically don't need a lot of maintenance and upkeep, Um, and so it was most likely destroyed by sort of the prophets of Baal. It was, it was typical that when you came into a region with sort of a new religion, that you kind of destroyed all of the religious symbols of the religion that had been there before. And so it it just gives you another picture about the mindset of the people of, of Israel at this time that they let that happen. That, that they let their altars be destroyed. Verse 33, Elijah decides, you know what, let's make this challenging. This is a challenge, let's make this challenging. He arranged the wood, he cut the bowl into pieces and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering of wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. What, what brought to mind as I read this part is a couple of years ago, the, the slam dunk contest, the NBA, uh, they just had it yesterday. A couple of years ago, a guy, Dwight Howard, he's about seven feet tall and he entered the slam dunk contest, which isn't fair when you can touch the rim. Like that's, that's not right. And so what he actually did was he brought in an additional rim that was set at 12 feet tall, two feet taller than regulation. And he went and dunked on that because he was sort of saying, this isn't challenging enough. Let's, let's raise the bar. Let's make this a challenge. And so 
he, he put the basket up higher. And I personally think 10 feet, plenty tall. I mean, just, it's been tall enough for years. And, but he wanted to make the point that this isn't challenging enough. I, let's make this more challenging. And, and Elijah's doing that here. God starting this dry altar on fire? Oh, let's make this fun. Let's drench the thing. And if there's one thing Alaskans know, it's the difficulty of dealing with wet wood. We know that that's not an ideal situation. I have a wood stove at home. If it's even remotely damp, it's just a nightmare to deal with. We love our dry wood. We guard it. We protect it. We don't tell anyone where we hide it. And so if there's been three and a half years of drought, question, where do you think they got the water? It's the ocean. The, the, the geography of this mountain is actually just comes right up out of the Mediterranean Sea. And so there's, there's sort of some debate as to how high up the mountain, whether they were on the top or halfway or where this actual altar would have been. But they're up on this mountain. But down at the base of the mountain is the Mediterranean Sea. And so Elijah's like, hey, why don't you guys go get some water from me? But it's down there. So could you take these large jars and and go down and and haul it back up for me so we can pour it on? And they're like, sure. So they could do it. And he goes, do it again. (laughs) And they do it. And at this point, I picture him just laughing like, they're doing it. Like, and, and they come back up and he's like, no, no, let's see if they'll do it a third time. And so he sends them back down. And, and so three times they haul these jars of, of water up this mountain and they pour it on the sacrifice. And it's wet enough that it's filled a trench around it with water. And, you know, he's sort of like, you know, I really like my sacrifices adequately damp before I start these sorts of things. And now what's the point of this besides just mere mockery and my own personal entertainment? It removes the doubt skeptics are always going to find a way to explain the impossible and the miraculous. Um, There hadn't been any rain in three and a half years, and I'm guessing the Israeli version of Smokey the Bear had his fire meter thing set to wood is spontaneously combusting. I'm not sure where that is on the chart, but he's just saying, we're just not having any room for doubt here. So Elijah prays. Verse 36, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I love the simplicity of this prayer. Two sentences. The other guys have been dancing and cutting and screaming and praying for hours. And Elijah steps up and in two sentences delivers this simple prayer. God knows what we need before we ask him. He wasn't petitioning God to join his side. And so he essentially says, hey, God, these guys, they've forgotten that you're God. Could you please remind them? So we see the result. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord burned or sorry, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishton Valley and slaughtered them. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's their response. The fire came down. It consumed 
uh, the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It says it consumed the stones. It consumed the dirt and it consumed the water. It must have looked like a meteor crash site right there. There was nothing left but probably a hole in the ground. Now, the slaughter of the prophets of Baal, maybe that's hard for us to swallow. Um, It wasn't just the result of a celebration gone out of hand. You think of maybe a sports team winning a championship and kind of the city riots in there. You know, the Israelites weren't tipping over chariots and lighting off fireworks and then sort of a slaughter broke out. They decided to go after the losing team. God actually gives a prescription in Deuteronomy for how to deal with false prophets, how to deal with people that are trying to lead his people astray. And it's a similar prescription to what a doctor would have with a cancer diagnosis. It needs to be completely eliminated, completely. Any trace of it left behind could trigger another outbreak. And so God doesn't come across as sort of the neighborhood bully that he won, so I'm going to kill your team. He comes across as the good physician who loves his country and is willing to go to the lengths necessary for their healing and for their restoration. So that brings us to the end of the story. It's an amazing story, uh, a story that I find myself enjoying again and again. But, but what do we actually take away from that? What do what, what are you and I supposed to walk home with from this story today? And I want to sort of leave you with, with two points, two things that, that I want to highlight uh, for you. First one is this. God doesn't go halvesies on you. He's not okay with lukewarm. He doesn't do wavering. He says it very clearly. Make a choice. Are you in or are you out? Get off your fence. God's not looking for undecided swing voters that go this way and that. He's looking to see, are you a disciple of mine or are you not? Are you a follower of Jesus or are you not? We had a a plaque in my house up on the wall growing up uh, that I used to, you know, you'd see it all the time. And it said this, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's referencing Joshua 24, 15. Can you make that claim? Have you gotten off the fence? Have you picked a side? My question for you, maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm not picking God's side right now. I'm on this side. And my question for you is, how's it working for you? That's a question you have to answer. How is it working for you? Is it delivering sort of the sense of fulfillment and promise and meaning that you were delivered? Or Or are you just sort of always one thing away from it being just good enough, but you never quite get there? If if you look at God and say, no, how's that working for you? I challenge you, wherever you're at, God says, pick a side. Get off the middle. Pick a side. The second thing that that I want to bring forward and, and sort of highlight out of this passage is this. God doesn't calculate odds like we do. And thank goodness for that, right? Divine mathematics are vastly different from human mathematics. There was nothing about this challenge that made sense from a human perspective. Elijah was not the overwhelming betting favorite. We look at the impossible, and yet God looks at it as possible. A couple of years ago, Adidas came out with a a, a slogan for their clothing brand. The slogan was, impossible is nothing. And what I think of is, that's not an athletic clothing slogan. That's a God slogan. 
Impossible is nothing when you're dealing with the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God that sent his son in the form of Jesus to conquer sin and death on our behalf. For that God, impossible is nothing. The question is not what can we do, the question is what can God do? And there's one quote I wanted to to leave with you as I came across uh, in my study this week. It's from a man, Howard Hendricks, and he said this, We are all faced with a series of great opportunities, brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what burdens you bring with you, what struggles and challenges are in your mind and in your life. But here's what I do know. God does. And he's bigger than that. Whatever you're carrying, whatever burden you're, whatever impossible challenge you're facing, he's bigger than that. He's bigger than that. He does not calculate odds the same way that you and I do. He does not see things from our perspective where we see impossible. God sees an opportunity to show just how possible it is with him. And I literally thank God for that. Let me pray. Nothing is impossible for you, God. And and you demonstrate in that that in this story. You've demonstrated that throughout history. You demonstrate that in creation. And God, my prayer is that you would just continue to demonstrate that in our lives. Um, Lord, as, as we come to you with our burdens, as we come to you with things that are, are beyond our ability to control, God, I am thankful that you are there, that you ask us to cry out to you, that you tell us to ask you to come to you, and that you hear us, and that you respond when it's for our good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing power. Thank you that you do not walk away from us in our moment of need, but that you stand behind us and you back us up. Thank you for your power that was put on display through a rugged man named Elijah as he challenged an entire country to come back to faith in you, God. Lord, help us to pick a side, and I pray for the wisdom to make the right decision to be on your side, God. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.